0: Two, one, zero, all engines running. Liftoff,
1: we have a liftoff. Hello everyone, welcome to another Laboratory News podcast. Hope you are well and thank you for being here. Coming up later, we find out why the genetics behind hibernation could yield incredible human health breakthroughs. But before that, it's time to meet a physicist that has frankly put us all to shame when it comes to working at home and I'm in danger of revealing way too much here, but I for one know I can barely get the computer on before a litany of tea drinking and dog walking takes over the day. Dr. Amruta Gaj from the University of Sussex suffers no such problems. She has busied herself during lockdown by creating an exotic quantum state of matter known as a Bose-Einstein condensate. Now, we'll find out what exactly that is in a moment. But I started by pointing out to Amruta that she had absolutely nailed working at home.
0: Well, we had to because uh, I mean obviously we weren't planning to do it remotely we were just continuing with our experiment and then came the lockdown so we had to quickly make preparations and you know set up all the softwares and uh, so that we can start working from from home and yeah it worked out quite well what we have done is we got Bose and condensate operating our experiment remotely
1: Okay, before we get into the semi magical quantum weirdness of Bose Einstein condensates, or BEC as you'll hear them referred to, even the non particle and quantum physicists amongst us know that ordinarily to do experiments like this involves some heavy old laboratory infrastructure with tables of photonics and banks of electrical equipment humming away in the background. So, how on earth do you do something like that from your living room?
0: Yes, so we have a, a lab space. We just started using all sorts of monitoring and remote control technologies. We had a lot of things already in place, so it, it's not like we did everything from scratch remotely. Of course, we had the experiment to a certain point, but if you think about the recipe to make Bose Einstein condensate, it's like it it depends on several several parameters, and because there are such fragile object, any sort of noise or any change in any one of these parameters can destroy destroy it. So you have to keep a track of all these things every time actually. So what we have done is we have a monitoring system where we keep monitoring all these parameters that are important to make BECs and we are always, always monitoring. So if something goes wrong, we immediately know, okay, this was the lab temperature fluctuating or my laser is not behaving. And this system was already in place and we were uh, to a certain extent already using it. But now we started using it to its full capacity.
1: Okay, I get the picture. So heavy physics infrastructure based at the lab with Amruta at home in her living room monitoring the situation. A bit like an air traffic controller for quantum physics. Okay, so now we know the how, time to find out about the what. Bose-Einstein condensates then, what exactly are they?
0: So uh, it has a bit of interesting history. So the theoretical prediction came in 1920s when two famous scientists, uh, one Indian scientist, Nath Bose and Albert Einstein, they came up with this uh, idea that for certain uh, kind of particles, uh, when you cool these particles, they, they will behave very, very differently. The fundamental principle of quantum mechanics is uh, wave-particle duality. So what happens is when you talk about these particles like atoms, and you start cooling them, the wave nature kind of starts dominating. And after certain temperature, all the atoms have one wave function and it behaves like a microscopic object. This phenomenon is called Bosenstein condensation. So this is the critical temperature below which all atoms start behaving very uniquely.
1: Okay, so a BEC then consists of atoms cooled down to almost unimaginably low temperatures. We're talking nano Kelvin, so only just a tiny amount above absolute zero. And then they take on these very strange physical and quantum properties. Now, given the amount of effort it took Amruta to create this state of matter, and it is known actually as the fifth state of matter, you'd like to think that all that work resulted in lots of sample that hung around in a very stable manner for a long time. Alas, that just is not the case.
0: It is short-lived state. We are talking about hundreds of milliseconds, or yeah, less than a second for sure. So we, you have to do all sorts of physics and uh, all your experiments within that short time.
1: Yeah, I have to say, these sound like unbelievably tricky experimental subjects.
0: They are. It's a very complex setup. Um, We have lots of lasers, we have lots of uh, high current power supplies, uh, different types of fields present in the lab, magnetic fields, radio fields. Yeah, it's, it's a very complicated
1: setup. You know what? I think my air traffic control analogy was way off. This is more like unbelievably high tech cooking, like the world's most complicated cake. So when you get all the ingredients correct, can you reliably create this stuff over and over?
0: Oh, yeah. So what happens is uh, we have a recipe for it and we keep repeating it. Uh, In our case, it's 10 seconds. The thing is, because a unique feature of quantum experiments that when you look at it, you kind of have destroyed the state. So we have to make it again. So we only see it by destroying it.
1: Yes, of course, a pretty well-known characteristic of some quantum states is that they'll be destroyed every time they're observed which is mysterious and brilliant, but also incredibly annoying for those trying to study it. But worth studying, they really are, and we'll find out a little bit later in the podcast some of the practical applications of Amruta's work. But for now, time for something completely different. Now, squirrels, hardly you'd be forgiven for thinking the key holders to our future health. But Katie Grabeck would be very keen to disagree. She's a geneticist and computational biologist who, along with two colleagues, have recently spun out the US-based Fauna Bio. Their rather swanky website claims that they're specialists in animal genomics for human health. But what does this really mean and what has it all got to do with hibernation? Now, if this podcast was a slightly slicker operation, I'd now throw to my colleague in the field interviewing Katie. But no surprises, it was me doing the interview. So uh, over to me. Well, first of all, congratulations for the startup of Fauna Bio. Uh, That must be very exciting for you Uh, guys.
2: Yes, it's it's very exciting for us. We were thinking, okay, if we could pick any career that we could imagine, what would we have? We're like, this is actually what we would love to be
1: doing. So. So tell me about what the company is, what you're aiming to do, because obviously, you know, we're very well used to using animals in research. But in, in many ways, you're turning that paradigm on its head. You're, you're using animals and their wild state and learning about them and then inferring some potentially useful things for us.
2: Yeah, so that's basically the, the idea of our company. Um, I think the three founders, we all came from this background of looking at these non-model organisms that are not traditionally used in research. Um, And we had noticed, particularly that, you know, my background was in hibernation. And, you know, all these animals become naturally protected from human diseases. So they kind of take on these human superpowers. Um, Like, how do they do that? And so we decided, you know, now that we have low-cost sequencing and we can start really analyzing the genomes and transcriptomes, we can really study these animals and learn how they're protecting themselves naturally and then identifying the same genes because right, these are going to be conserved evolutionarily and go and target them in humans and actually make therapies. And so uh, that's basically how we started. What was the impetus for starting our company is uh, I think we all got a little bit frustrated when we were in our postdoc um, and in grad school, we would do these studies, we'd write these papers, and then we'd, you know, we'd put in the end of our paper. Well, someday this will be translated into a therapy and it's like well who's sitting there waiting to read our papers and translate them and we didn't see much translation going on we thought why don't we actually try instead of just saying in theory we're going to translate this into a therapy let's try and go for it you know we see these genes that look protective let's try and make therapies out of
1: them so it's, it's quite a well known frustration isn't it that the conversion of even quite applied blue sky research to a therapy or a genuinely useful end product is is always a big gap isn't it
2: Yes, it's quite a bridge, and I think when we, you know, when we were in academia, part of the focus was really on just publishing papers and then writing, figuring out how we're going to get our next grant funded so that we could write more papers. And so the focus really wasn't thinking about making a therapy and translating this. We thought, well, you know, some
1: pharmaceutical company will read our papers. <laughs> that doesn't tend to happen. So. So we'll we'll get more into what you're you know how you're doing that at Biofauna in a moment but first of all let's talk about hibernation because I know that's your background and um, it turns out it's actually really quite dangerous for an animal to go through it. Yes
2: yeah, so th- you, you think about animals when they hibernate I think you know when I even started I thought hibernation was as well these animals go to sleep for half the year and It's just like they're sleeping through the winter. And that's not at all what's happening, right? They have to really depress their metabolic rate and use heat production. Um, They have to reduce their respiratory rate and heart rate and uh, 1% of normal. And so this would be quite lethal to anyone that doesn't hibernate. And so they have to maintain function, not only when their body's near freezing, then they have to periodically, at least the the small body hibernators have to periodically re-arouse. And they do this within a couple of hours. So it's quite amazing to go from 1% of baseline you know, metabolic rate up, back up to 100% in a two-hour period. This would be lethal to us. As, so they have to really become protected at this point because it's very similar to yeah, what happens when you have a heart attack or a stroke. So you have very low blood flow, and then all of a sudden, you have know, this massive burst of metabolic activity. And so it's like the reperfusion after a stroke or a heart attack.
1: Is it, is it the case that all hibernating mammals do this, or do they all have to battle different problems during their hibernation period? So
2: not all the hibernating mammals have to do these arousal. I think it's really the animals that really have to deeply suppress their metabolic rate and that if they didn't have to do that, so say like the bears, they don't have to suppress metabolic rate as deeply to get the the energy savings because their metabolic rates already quite low for their body mass. So they don't have to arouse but they do have to become protected from other issues. Um, they still do have some cardio protection in their heart because they do reduce heart rate. Um, and then one of the major things is this resistance to bone and muscle atrophy, since these animals don't move all winter. And then in the spring, they don't have this luxury of, well, I'll just go to physical therapy. You know, you know everything wants to eat a squirrel <laughs> or the bears. They really, you know, they need to now start start packing on the calories. They can't wait for their muscles to come back. So. Uh, they have to turn off whatever is causing atrophy. You know, normally within a week of us
1: just laying in bed, we'd lose muscle mass. So, it's really interesting, isn't it? It's a real hazard to have to go through hibernation. And you guys are approaching this from an applied point of view, but from an evolutionary standpoint, it's amazing. That it says to me that hibernation has incredible adaptive utility for them. Uh, to develop it because they've had to come up with all these strategies to allow them to do it like it, it's obviously not an easy trait to acquire evolutionarily speaking so it must be very valuable for them
2: yeah i think i think you know what we've seen is that this idea that you can suppress metabol- metabolic rate right is conserved evolutionarily and even in lizards we can get an- you know there's animals that go into torpor there's turtles that can survive hypoxia There's birds that go into torpor, uh, which is basically a suppressing metabolic rate and then lowering body temperature. Um, And then across all the, you look across all the major mammalian clades, you find animals that can either go into hibernation or torpor. So I think that's probably just that that basic trait is conserved. But then all these other protections, really, if you have to go into deep hibernation for half the year, those become more uh, more accelerated in evolution. And so we we see both actually when we look at the genomes, like parts of the genome look conserved across hibernators, and then parts look. Like they're really undergoing acceleration or
1: accelerated evolution. Of course, the reason that the hibernating mammals have evolved hibernate is that there are periods throughout the year where resources are so scarce that they wouldn't survive anyway.
2: Yeah, there's even, a, there's even an idea that the first... And, you know, the ancestral mammal that crossed that KT boundary when all the dinosaurs went extinct actually went into a state of torpor to survive the resource scarcity. And so that the first mammal was actually an animal that could either go into torpor or could hibernate. And so this was kind of the why it's an ancestral trait. And in theory, we should have these same genes in humans.
1: Okay, so that's hibernation and and how difficult it is and how interesting the various mechanisms are that have uh, evolved to allow an animal to survive it so so what what do you do with that now then from a from a medicinal development point of view What what's the plan now
2: so what we've been doing is uh basically we have a a, a biobank of hibernating ground squirrel tissues um that we're sequencing so we're getting all of the transcriptome and epigenome data and then uh we have and so we have the genome sequence, we have a lot of the genetic sequencing done on these squirrels, and then we're combining that data. So we're mining the transcriptome data, and then we combine that with publicly available data. So now that everyone's doing sequencing, we can go and mine the databases of other animals that hibernate or don't hibernate, and, but um, maybe we put through an ischemia reperfusion event or some sort of heart attack. And then um, to add on another layer, we'll combine that with human genetic data, so GWAS data, so we're, we're trying to broaden this out and not just be focused on novel genes that are only specific to hibernating mammals, but are shared across all organisms. Um, we've made basically a computational platform that incorporates all this data. And then we build from the transcriptome data, we're building gene regulatory networks, and we're identifying basically the hub genes of these large networks that we see changing when we know the animal is becoming protected um, for hibernation, so different time points of the year. And then and then we incorporate the other data, you know, the human GWAS data, so we can make predictions on what genes we think are important for, say, cardioprotection. And then uh, we'll go and take that into human cell lines, and then we'll actually go and test those, perturb the expression of those genes, and then test them in human cell lines another aspect we have with our platform is then we could also look for, um, basically, since we know the transcriptional signatures of when the animals are protected, we can ask, can we find compounds that also mimic these transcriptional signatures? Um, and then we can actually just go and repurpose
1: compounds for the same kind of protective phenotype. So ultimately, what we're talking about here is, is at the end of the day, uh, gene therapy.
2: Yeah, so part of it would be I mean, part of it can be targeting gene therapy. So we've looked into, you know, this is a little bit downstream of, uh, we can either target genes through AAVs or siRNAs. Um, we could also do a small molecule screen. If we find gene target, we want to knock down or upregulate. So we can find some molecule. And then the other way is just to find a compound that causes the same change in gene expression that we see in the hibernating mammals. Um, And then we can say, oh, we think this compound is really going to be cardioprotective. So can we, and and we've, we've just gotten some in vivo data back, actually where we've identified a compound that matches the, what we see going on in the squirrel's heart and hibernation. So, you know, it turns on all these genes when they're going through this ischemia reperfusion event. Um, so like the heart attack, we know the animals are protected. So we've, we've tested this compound in vitro. We found some protective results. We now have just tested it in, in vivo and rat heart. And we're finding that it's really improving um, cardiac output after a myocardial infarction
1: event. So what would be the plan then generally for you guys is is that ultimately you want to reach a point where you do the uh, early work for these kinds of drugs and then you license them out or you partner or are you looking to scale up yourselves what's what's the plan uh,
2: I'd say both so right now since we are small we'd like to partner partner and license out and we do have an early discovery partnership with Novo Nordisk um but as we scale up and as we grow, we'd like to have our own
1: assets that we would then keep in house. So that's obviously the main focus of, of what you guys are doing. Is there any o- other aspects of animal physiology that you are, you are tapped into, hoping to have the same strategy? Or is it, is it mainly the processes involved in hibernation? I would say it is hibernation. That's
2: um, where our, you know my expertise was what we had the resources in. But we realized that once we built this platform and we've Kind of mind all these different phenotypes of hibernation and right now it's, it's tough because hibernation does have so many different biomedical aspects that we just feel like we haven't even tapped yet um but once we've mined that out we realized well we can apply these strategies to other phenotypes um so we do have collaborators that are looking at we're, we're interested in the deep diving mammals and how they can uh survive hypoxia for so long um and then you know, we've read the papers about the deer and and how they regrow, how they regrow their antlers and, you know, the regrowth of bones. So there's other aspects that we realize. okay, we could apply these strategies to other mammals that seem to have these kind of superhuman powers that we just simply can't do. So,
1: yeah, yeah. It's it's really interesting. And there's a couple of kind of famous, uh, almost maybe apocryphal tales of uh, animals outside that as well. So, you know, the, the sharks and their apparent immunity to cancer and the starfish and their ability to grow a new limb. Um, so that, yeah, it's interesting there's a real treasure trove of genetically managed capability that we could perhaps leverage.
2: Yes, I, that's that's basically why we decided that, you know, that's why we wanted to start the company. It's like, well, you know, we're so focused on studying ourselves and our genomes, human genomes and there may be just a handful of model organisms. But then if you look at it in nature, there's just so many animals that can just do so many amazing things. And why aren't we, you know, now we have the capability. Let's study them genetically and identify how they're doing these, how they've naturally come up with these mechanisms to do these things that are just uh, beyond our capabilities.
1: Katie Grabeck there on the surprisingly hazardous behavior of hibernation. Okay, time to return to our intrepid quantum explorer, Amruta Gadge. Having created an exotic state of matter known as Bose-Einstein condensate, Amruta has been justifiably pleased with how her lockdown has gone. But so far, so theoretical. I wanted to know if there were any practical applications for the fifth state of matter.
0: Uh, yeah, so we want to develop these quantum sensors. In our case, it's the magnetic fields that we are interested in. Uh, so we want to make a quantum magnetic field sensor using these bosons and condensates. These are very sensitive objects, so it's very difficult to make them. But on the other hand, we can once we make them, we can use this property to sense different kinds of fields. So because they're so sensitive to external environment, you can use them to measure magnetic fields, very, very tiny magnetic fields, for example. Quantum sensors are very... Important uh, technology now, and it's, it, there's a lot of research going on uh, using these quantum objects to make quantum sensors.
1: So, quantum sensing then clearly a growth area, but what exactly can one sense? So, these
0: tiny magnetic fields can be generated from anything. So, we have possible applications in medical imaging, for example, or uh, We also are looking at electric vehicle batteries to determine where the fault is by measuring the magnetic fields using these objects. Um, The other interesting application that we have in mind is touchscreen displays. So there is a new field uh, of silver nanowires, uh, a network of silver nanowires that has potential application in making these uh, touchscreen displays. So the current that flows through these networks creates a tiny magnetic field and using our Bose-Einstein condensate, we can map out this current distribution and study
1: these networks in detail. So, touchscreen devices, next-generation battery technology, and even medical imaging. There's certainly a lot of potential for devices like this. But I have to confess, at this point, I was a bit confused as to actually what it would entail. Would it be a physical sensor with quantum technology at its core?
0: We hope so. Maybe not immediately, but eventually, maybe in ten years. Yeah, but right now we are yeah, developing all the science and
1: technology for it. But for now, I couldn't really leave Amruta, a quantum physicist after all, without getting all giddy and excited about the crazy world of quantum physics. I mean it just seems so counterintuitive. It's just like magic.
0: Yeah, yeah, it is like magic. Yeah. <laughs> but we have had technologies based on quantum physics, like Uh, x-rays or mri machines and uh, nuclear power plants it's all quantum physics physics that that's really underlying principle of all these applications
1: there we go so before my head explodes with the weirdness of quantum physics i think it's probably time to say goodbye thank you very much for listening and i will see you next episode